It's great to see you guys this morning. Uh, thank you all for being here, for being here for Sunday school. Uh, it's been, I don't know, seven or eight years since I taught at Sunday school, so uh, hopefully you remember uh, as much as I did, and I don't remember a lot. Um, but before we get started, let's uh, go before God in prayer. Almighty Lord, we give thanks uh, for your word. We thank you for all that you have done for us. As we come before you to learn uh, more about you, I ask that you would uh, guide our hearts and our minds in our discussion this morning. Uh, that it may not be for our own glory. That it might not be so that we can um, simply learn things and keep them at a distance, but that we might learn more about you and, and come to embrace you and love you more and more. All these things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so let's start with some, uh, some softball review questions. What have, what has this uh, whole lesson series been on that I've been teaching? Covenant theology. Great job. Um, What is a covenant? Jonathan. It's like a promise. It's like a promise. Absolutely. There's an agreement. Um, there's usually different elements, um, but they have a lot of similarities. Things such as a promise, things such as obligations, um, things such as consequences for not holding up your end of the bargain, um, things like that. Those build up a covenant. Um, we talked about how we face covenants every day in this world, right? We have covenants that we interact with all the time. One of them is marriage, right? If you're married, you're in a covenant. Now, there is if you have a bank account, you have a you're in a covenant. If you pay a mortgage, you pay rent, um, you have a credit card. And if you're born in the United States, you are in a covenant, right? Because you are in a covenantal relationship with the state as a citizen. John, what's your, you have a question? What if you are born in once, if you are born in the U.S. and then move out, does that, I mean, like, what happens? And why are you, why do you have a covenantal relationship? Those are good questions. Um, part of it is because, let's say you move out, right? You're, you have a relationship with the United States. That doesn't stop once you move out. Um, and it's possible to be a citizen of multiple countries. So you'd have a covenantal relationship with different countries. And the covenantal relationship means I promise to do my part, which is pay taxes, right? And take part in voting, things like that. And the state promises on its end to provide infrastructure, protection, um, economic stuff. All those things are part of a covenantal relationship. So you're born a citizen, and that brings you into a covenant with the United States. Um, There's good questions, but we're still in review. So when we're talking about the Bible, when we get to the Bible, what does the Lord do in covenants that we don't see the world do? Jonathan. He holds them in high regard, and many times the punishments are looking the guard at death. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, God loves covenants. He holds them very highly. There's a couple of things, though, that the Lord does in covenants. John? He swears by himself. Okay. He swears by himself. Does God make conditional covenants or unconditional covenants? Yes or no? Yes. Yes. <laughs> uh, he makes both kinds, right? We have examples in Scripture of conditional covenants, and we have examples in Scripture of unconditional covenants. What's an example of a conditional covenant in Scripture? 
Yes. Don't eat the fruit or you'll die. Don't eat that fruit. Don't eat that pineapple because you'll die. Right? There's a, a relationship that God made with Adam and Eve in the garden that's a, a conditional relationship. So that means that there are conditions that Adam and Eve are obligated to fulfill. And if they fulfill them, there are rewards that they receive. And if they don't, there's consequences. Right? So the covenant of works, as we call it, in creation, Adam and Eve, they're in the garden. God says, don't eat of that fruit because you'll die. Um, they eat of the fruit and then they die. Right? That is a covenant of works. They don't hold up their end of the bargain. They receive the consequences. They receive the, the curse. What did the Lord do right after that? Adam and Eve fall. God comes. What does he do? Jonathan? He slays the serpent? I mean, like you're saying, Adam and Eve fall before it comes. I mean, I don't know what right after that definition means. That's fine. One right after that would be he establishes a angel with a fiery sword to protect the garden, and another one is 10,000 years later he comes in and breaks the dragon. Okay, yeah. So... The Lord actually sets in motion what you just said, right? 10,000 years later, however many years later, God comes and he, and he crushes the serpent. But he's, he plants the seeds for that right after the fall. And there's a lot of things that happen, right? God comes and he curses the serpent. He comes and he curses man and, and Adam and Eve. But he also says something in Genesis 3.15 where he says, An offspring shall come who will crush the head of the serpent and the serpent will bruise his heel. That's a promise that isn't attached to any condition that Adam and Eve must fulfill. Right? We just got out of a conditional covenant. We just got out of a covenant of works where Adam and Eve were obligated to do something. They failed. They received the curses. Now God is saying, I'm going to make a promise to you. And you're expecting the next thing to come out of God's mouth so long as... But he doesn't. He doesn't say anything like that. He doesn't say so long as or unless you do this or you must do this and then you'll get an offspring. Right? What do we call that? When God gives a promise without it being conditional upon us. John? We call that grace. Um, but we need to talk about what, what grace is. Um, because grace is a term we use constantly. Um, it's something that we're going to be talking about a lot as we move into what this means, this covenant, this promise that the Lord has just made to Adam and Eve. Um, so I wanted to talk about what grace is because three weeks ago or something, right, we talked about um, a question that Charlie had about if Adam was a mediator. Um, and we arrived at the conclusion that according to the biblical definition, yes, Adam was a mediator um, because a mediator is a representative biblically. Um, the modern definition of a mediator is, is more like an intermediary, someone who is in the middle trying to mediate two parties and trying to get the best of both worlds for both parties. Basically, someone who's trying to like bring peace between two opposing parties. And they're for both parties. What the Bible calls that, that's what the Bible calls more like reconciliation, which is something that Jesus does do. Um, but because Adam was representing all of humanity, he was a representative, thus he was a mediator. Jonathan? What exactly is the difference between a mediator and an intermediator? A mediator 
in the Bible is someone who represents someone else. So Adam was a mediator because he represented all of his, his children. Uh, Jesus was a mediator because he represents all of the elect. Um, an intermediary, an intermediary that's, that's fun to say, is more like someone who is trying to find help bring two opposing parties um, to a conclusion or to a compromise. Um, so he's trying to get, like, he's trying to help two different parties. He's a neutral party coming into a situation and trying to bring um, peace. Does that make sense? Okay, so that's what we talked about three weeks ago. And I wanted to talk about what grace is. Um, and Charlie asked what it was, I think, at two minutes after we had <laughs> run out of time. Um, so I figured it would be good to just kind of take some time today and talk about what grace is. Um, if you were to define grace, how would you define it? Jonathan? Mercy that one doesn't deserve, something that one doesn't deserve. That one, the opposite deserves actually. Okay, those are that's a really good definition. Yeah, it's getting something that you don't deserve. Anyone want to add to that? Unmerited favor. Unmerited favor. How do you think um, other, let's call them traditions, define grace? How do you think Roman Catholics define grace? It's earned. Charlie? I think that in the Reformed tradition, you'll find that some people see grace before it's demerited as just being in a favorable relationship with, with God. Okay. What? John Murray last, last time. Mm-hmm. And then that would be kind of almost maybe how you, I think, Okay, I'm not sure what you mean. Could you? Could you? What? What did you mean? <laughs> so that grace is just could be, according to some traditions, as you posited it, just having a right relationship or disposition. So that God is, but there's nothing alien or uh, strange in his disposition, finding grace, finding favor, like that it could be synonymously understood as favor. Okay. I think. Without the, the unmerited part right. in front. I, you asked for traditions. I, I've read other traditions that describe it as just favor. Okay. Not necessarily unmerited. Okay, I'm tracking now. Yeah, sure. There's other other traditions will define it basically as grace is just God's favor, whether you've earned it or not. It's just it's a disposition of the Lord, and I think there's truth there. Um, someone said, I think it was Kylie, right? Roman Catholic. There's something about it that's earned. Um, that's not entirely true, but there's elements of of the Roman Catholic definition that hit there. Here's here's what I found when I did a little bit of research, is that typically the Roman Catholics will define grace as a supernatural gift for eternal salvation. So notice notice the difference. Typically, Reformed people will talk about grace as, as unmerited favor. Roman Catholics will talk about it as a supernatural gift. What are the differences? What's the difference between a gift and favor? Jonathan? There's technically no difference, but 
if we go into the worldly part of it, a favor is generally when somebody does something for you. Like when Jesus slew the serpent for all of us, that was a favor. His gift for believing in us is eternal life. If you get, start to go into worldly definitions, which I don't like to do. <laughs> okay. So, yeah, there's, there's definitely similarities, as Jonathan pointed out. But what about, what about differences? John? It could be the one is, has strings attached to it. Mm-hmm. Like a favor is, it can be st- bestowed on a person, but it's only because they've earned it, so to speak. I mean, it's a, I mean, we can call it a gift too, but it's not really a gift if you've earned it. So let's, let's back up a step. Because a favor and favor are two different things. Right? A favor is something you do for someone. But what's, what is it when someone is, is favorable towards you? What, is that, what does that mean? It's like their attitude is changed. Like it wasn't, at once you were enemies with God and now you're reconciled to him. Yeah, yeah, it's an attitude. Charlie, you have some ad? That, it, like, that, you're, there's a, that you're pleased, right? There's admiration and affection, right? Um, yeah. Yeah, there's, there is, it's more than just, um, I'm going to do good things for you. It's, I like you, <laughs> in a sense. As being in someone's good graces. Yeah. They're pleased with you, right? Being in good favor, being in good relationship. If I'm favorable towards Masha, it means I like her and she's in my good graces. Um, and hopefully I'm in her good graces, um, unless I, you know... <laughs> Make a make a big mistake, um, which I do. But favor, right, is different from a favor, and that's where the Roman Catholics will start talking about it as a gift. It's a little bit different because the Roman Catholics will talk about grace as something that God gives and as a gift that God bestows. And that's not to say that God doesn't give gifts. Obviously, he does. But when you start talking about it, instead of an attitude but a gift, you start to think about grace as a thing, as a substance, as a this is something that exists outside of God instead of it being an attitude of God. Jonathan, you are literally bouncing up and down. What's up? So, Mr. Monty said a couple minutes ago that the Roman Catholics define fit well, we, this has kind of all been repeating itself, mm-hmm. that the Roman Catholics define faith as by someone's works. None of that in reality. Mm-hmm. So, two questions. Okay. One, what is the difference between the Roman Catholics who believe that if you work hard as a Christian, you'll get salvation, and Islam... Where they believe that you need to work hard and have favor with Allah. How do you get favor with with Allah? My question for them. And second question. So, day. That's all right. That's all right. Um, I don't know. I'm not prepared to talk about Islam. Um, I don't know how Islam would define grace or even talk about grace. But Roman Catholics, so faith for Roman Catholics is is similar, right? Believe in Jesus Christ, you'll be saved. But there's also an element where God gives you grace, right? Because it's a gift and you need to take 
hold of it and use it and it's it's something that you take hold of yourself so they won't say that you're saved by works but they will define things in such a way that you you basically are def- you are saved by works not because they will say that outright but because if grace is a gift it's something that you need to take hold of that you need to use and if you don't right if you sin in such a way you can actually remove the gift from you they call those mortal sins that if you sin in such a way you could actually lose the gift so it's not an attitude of God, it's a gift that God bestows that you could lose and that you need to take advantage of. Um, and if you don't, you're not going to be saved. Charlie, you had your hand up a second ago. Nope, okay. Um, does, that, does that make sense? Yeah. Okay, so there's still, there is still an element in Roman Catholic thought about grace as something unmerited, as something unearned, um, as a gift of God. But it's a free and undeserved help that God gives. Charlie? Yeah, I think uh, it's like the, the nature of grace is distinct, where it's more of a substance. Right. right? There's like a treasury of grace. Mm-hmm. So that cooperation is by you and through all of these various different acts, you know, petitioning even for more to receive more grace. Right. Right. Whereas. We understand it more forensically, right? That it's, it's a declaration done by God, which you know, declares us righteous because of Christ. Not something that we are. Not, we're not mixing justification and sanctification. Yeah. So here's here's where this the rubber meets the road, right? You can talk about all this stuff abstractly, but for the average Christian, what this means is that you need more of this substance. And you want more of the substance because it's good for you. It's good. It's, it's God's gift to you. And so how do you get more? How do you get more of the substance, according to the Roman Catholics? Going to Mass. Going to Mass. Works. You could do works. What else? Jonathan? I just remember my second question. Uh, okay, wait, wait just a second and we'll come back to it. Um, how else can you get more grace as a Roman Catholic? There's a really big one. Sorry, what? You could pay for it. You could pay some money. Um, how else? Prayer. There's one big one that happens every mass. That we do every week, and it involves food and drink. Sometimes of the bread variety. Sometimes of the winage. Well, the, Eucharist. the Eucharist. Okay, the Holy Supper, right? For the Roman Catholics, this is a vehicle for grace. This is a vehicle for the substance to get into you, um, and this is why the Roman Catholics have theology such as, as long as the supper is done in the right way, it works. Right? As long as it's done the right way by the right person, it communicates. It's a vehicle for grace to somebody, regardless of of where that person is at spiritually. Because it's a substance, it's not an attitude or disposition of God. So the supper, right? You go to Mass, you get your daily dose of grace, you get all that good, good, good stuff that tastes so good, and you become a better Christian, and you do better things, and as long as you you know, go to confession and do your Hail Marys, then you keep having the gift and don't do any mortal sins, and then you get baptized at the very end of your life, because that's what's, the, where, you know, finally you're regenerated or something, right? 
a bunch of wacky stuff, all stemming from the fact that they define grace like this. So you see how it's important to define grace in the right way. Otherwise, what we start with here, right, trickles down into all these different things. And suddenly, you're talking about grace, and you're talking about works, and you're talking about having to do your part for salvation, and all of these things. So we're not, we're not bound by this, thankfully. Right? We're not forced to think about grace in this way. Um, Caleb, do you have a question? Yeah, I just have a question. Mm-hmm. So your question is, what do we mean by means of grace? Yeah, as, how is that distinguished from how the Catholics do? Mm-hmm. That's a good question. Um, for the Roman Catholics, right, grace is a substance. So it's it has to be communicated to you through a vehicle. It's, it's something that God, you know, gives to you as a gift. When we talk about means of grace... What we mean is ways that we experience God's favor. And specifically, things that God has given us out of his favor for our good. So a means of grace, for instance, is the word. This is, this is a huge gift of God. And he's given it to us by his grace. And it's a way to communicate to us right, how much he loves us. And same with the supper. It's, it's not a, a way that we can get more and more, hoard up more grace for ourselves. It's a way that the Lord shows us and tells us and reminds us and fills us with the fact that he loves us. Um, and he does all of that, not through the bread and the wine specifically. Or not specifically, but by themselves. Right? That's where the Roman Catholics will say, well, ex opera operato. By the doing of it, it's done. As long as you do it the right way, it works. What we say is, no, it works through the Holy Spirit. Because the Holy Spirit is present and, and blessing and loving and showing his favor to those who receive it by faith. Because um, God... Yeah, Dave? Would it be accurate to say that we aren't... The Catholics view salvation through the, the Eucharist. Whereas we're not seeing salvation through the Lord's Supper or baptism... We are experiencing God's grace in measure, but we're not being saved through it, right? Is that, is that accurate? Yeah, it's, that's not a terrible way of, of, of talking about it. I'd have to think about it a little bit more, but... You know, a major difference is, for Catholic Catholicism, it's a ritual that, that they go through a baptism. That's when they get their first grace. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> so that's already there. It's not the grace that we receive as, that we know as Protestants. That it's, you know, it, in the act of salvation that once we've received Christ. So that's a major difference. Yeah. And often Roman Catholics will wait to get baptized because it kind of washes all the previous sins. So if you do it at the end of your life, right, it kind of, it's like a, it just kind of wipes all the, the past records. So you don't have to do your Hail Marys. You don't have to do your confession. You don't go to purgatory. Um, as long as you get baptized, and it, yeah, it's just confusing. Okay, Jonathan. So, if the cap, two questions. Okay. If the Catholics believe that the Lord's Supper is a vehicle for grace to get into you, then how do you put grace into bread and wine? <laughs> because it literally turns into the body and blood of Christ. 
So it's, it's something called transubstantiation. It's a big word. It just means that the Roman Catholics believe that as soon as the priest utters the words, right, this is my body, it turns into the body of Christ. It doesn't, like, doesn't look like it. It's still on the outside. It looks like bread. But physically and literally it turns into the body of Christ is what they believe. And thus, because you're eating the body of Christ, you are getting grace. So that's why they believe that it's a, it's a vehicle. What's your second question? And my second question is, what are the differences between our beliefs and the beliefs of the Roman Catholics? Like, on the really, 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 really detailed scale. On the really, 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 really detailed scale. Um, well, we don't believe grace is a substance. We don't believe that it physically, the body, the, the bread and wine don't physically turn into the body and blood of Christ. We believe that Christ is present spiritually through the, uh, through the presence of the Holy Spirit. So there is something happening with the bread and wine spiritually. Um, and, and really, it's something true, but it's not physical. Um, and there's a lot of other differences that we have between us and the Roman Catholics. But the big one is that we define grace not as a substance, but as Gary told us earlier, right, grace is unmerited favor. So what is mer- Oh, sorry. I was just going to say, you were talking about uh, Catholics and, and the <coughs> communion that they have. Mm-hmm. They are physically sacrificing Christ every time they have communion. Right. Christ died once for our sins. So it's a remembrance for us as to what he did. Whereas they're doing it, it's like the first time wasn't good enough, so they're continuing to do it again and again. Yeah. Yeah, it's a good point. That was March. Okay. 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 Thank you. Thank you for correcting me. Um, so I was wrong about Roman Catholics and baptism, as Marge just corrected me. Uh, they don't wait till the end of the life. You actually do it in infancy because it's really, really important to salvation. Right. Yeah. 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 It's like a gift. It's like you get a bike for Christmas, but you could still, you know, run it off the side of a mountain and die. Um, okay. I saw Masha's hand, and then and then Jenny. Actually, with the Reformed view, there is a vehicle, but it's not the bread and the wine, and it's not a vehicle in the same way. But we are saved by grace through faith. Thank you. 
that the Holy Spirit does, you know, communicate grace to his people, but it's through faith. That faith is the key factor. So what the Roman Catholics define grace is, there's, there's differences, but there's actually a little bit of similarity where they call grace a gift. We call faith a gift, right? Because faith is itself a gift that we are given, and through faith we receive Christ when we take the, the, the bread and the wine. Um, and that's why right, it's important to be a member of a church and to have professed faith, to have faith, because if you don't have faith and you take the bread and the wine, it's not communicating grace to you. It's actually the opposite. It's communicating that unless you confess your sins, you are, you are doomed. You are going to hell. Charlie? Yeah, I think the emphasis, the distinction between us is the emphasis on either man and what we are doing in it and God and what he has the prerogative or you know, sovereign ability to do. Our confession says, how do the sacraments become effectual means of salvation? The sacraments become effectual means of salvation not by any power in themselves, mm-hmm. which is contrary to Rome, right. where it's very much like kind of a vending machine. Right? Yeah. You get out what you, you're playing in. Um, not by any power in themselves or any virtue derived from the piety or intention of him by whom they are administered. So not because the priest or the minister. Right. But only by the working of the Holy Ghost and the blessing of Christ by whom they are instituted. And so I think the emphasis in our confessions is on Christ and the, and the Holy Spirit. And as you just said a second ago, the very fact that you can eat judgment onto your own head refutes the idea that they are necessarily and essentially only vehicles of grace. Mm-hmm. You can take them improperly. Yeah. Right? Um, and that's why Paul says and warns in First Corinthians, right, some of you have died. Because <clears throat> if you eat this in the wrong way or without faith, it's actually judgment. It's, it's death to you. Um, which, you know, is, is, which would be impossible if we were, you know, believing the Roman Catholic view, which should give us pause, but only for a second before we remember that, right, faith is a gift. If I believe in Jesus Christ, this is, this is God's love towards me. This is not a curse. Um, even if you've sinned every second of every day this week, and yet you have come to the Lord and said, I'm a sinner, I love you, please forgive me, it's grace. Right? And that's why we talk about being a member in good standing, is if you're under church discipline, it's the church saying, you're, we are calling you to hold back from the supper because there's sin in your life that you haven't yet repented of or that you're in the process of repenting of that might come between you and the Lord, that might hinder you and might hurt you. So it's for your own good to stand back from the supper. Um, and obviously, sorry, Marge, go ahead. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. How do we know we're saved? Is it because we look at ourselves and say, "Well, I've I've done these things"? No. It's because we look at the cross and we say, "Jesus has died for me. He has done it all." Yes. Right. Nope, you cannot lose your salvation. Um, that would be a very, very dark and scary thing indeed. Charlie? Yeah, our children aren't in right relationship because they come to dinner every time I call them to the table. Right? Like they, they are in my love because it is set upon them. Right? It completely undermines 
sort of the meritorious side of, of earning and again man's it being against a man maintaining that relationship right? yeah. it makes God very passive in all of that mm-hmm. rather than the act of God that we know him to be yeah as the one who is actively working in your hearts and minds and lives through the Holy Spirit. I'm just realizing more and more lately how important and and everywhere the Spirit is in Scripture. We just we're not really we're not really looking for him. We're not really thinking about the third person of the Trinity as as someone active. Um, maybe we think about him as a passive thing, kinda hovering around, hanging out. Um, no. We'll we'll see a little bit of that in the sermon today, just a little bit. Um, all right. Well, we've spent an hour talking about Roman Catholics. Um, so, in the two minutes we have, let's talk about all the things. The four more pages of notes I have. Um, yeah, we're not going to have time. So, just just briefly, let me lay the groundwork for for next week. Um, what is what is merit? Because we've talked about, we've heard grace reformed. We talk about grace as unmerited favor, maybe demerited favor. Um, what is merit? I saw John's hand. I would say that depends on who you're talking to. Okay. Roman Catholics might define it as what you do. We might define it as doing your best to be a better Christian. There's a gazillion definitions in Depends on who you're talking to. Okay. I think there's truth there, but I think we probably wouldn't define it that much differently from the Roman Catholics. Something earned. Something earned. I think that's probably a simple, good way of describing what merit is. Right? Something that you have earned. If I, you know, I have a job, I go to work, I do a good job, I've earned my paycheck. Right? If I go to work and I do a terrible job, or I don't go to work... And my boss says, well, you didn't show up to work today. You're not going to get paid. I can't say, well, I earned it. You have to give it to me. No, I, I didn't earn it. Now, if my boss gave me my paycheck anyways, that's unmerited favor. I did not earn my paycheck, and yet I received it. In fact, I kind of did the opposite of what I'm supposed to do to get my paycheck. I, I didn't go to work. And yet, I still received the paycheck. That's grace, I think. Um, can we, on this side of the fall, merit anything from God? Nope. Why not? Because we're fallen. We are imperfect beings. Mm-hmm. We don't have the power. We don't have the knowledge to do it. We can't have power and knowledge to do it, in fact. Yeah. Because on this side of the fall... We are broken, we are corrupt, and even, I think it's Isaiah, says your best works are dirty rags. The best thing that you could do is still gross, filthy, stinky, That's our best on the side of the fall. So we have no hope of salvation unless God does something. Unless God earns for us. So when we're talking about the covenant of grace, it's grace for us, but it's still the Lord earning something. And that's why we talked about covenants of works first, and why we talked about the covenant of works of creation, and why we talked about the covenant of redemption, is because the covenant of redemption is a covenant of works. 
where Christ promised to earn salvation for the elect. And then he came to earth, became a human, he lived the perfect life, he died on the cross and he rose again, and he earned eternal life for his people. So that's, that's the blueprint, and we'll flush out more about grace next week and talk about the difference between grace and mercy. We'll talk about common grace. We'll talk about was there grace before the fall. Um, we'll talk about a lot of great fun stuff. Um, but for now, um, let's pray and then we'll close. John, why don't you talk to me afterwards and I'll answer your question. Uh, but let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your grace. We thank you that you have loved us and that you shine your face upon us, that you are gracious towards us, that you don't treat us like our sins deserve, but you treat us like children that you love and cherish. Lord, may you teach us to to forget all of our own works, to leave all that behind, to not try to earn anything from you because we can't, but instead to, in gratitude, seek to serve you, not to earn, but just to show you that we are thankful and that we love you. Thank you, God, for all that you've done for us. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. You have another... Oops.